Question 186, Part 1 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Treatise on the States of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Treatise on the States of Life by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 186. Of those things in which the religious state properly consists, in ten articles. Part 1. Articles 1 through 5. We must now consider things pertaining to the religious state, which consideration will be fourfold. In the first place, we shall consider those things in which the religious state consists chiefly. Secondly, those things which are lawfully befitting to religious. Thirdly, the different kinds of religious orders. Fourthly, the entrance into the religious state. Under the first head, there are ten points of inquiry. First, whether the religious state is perfect, Second, whether religious are bound to all the councils. Third, whether voluntary poverty is required for the religious state. Fourth, whether continency is necessary. Fifth, whether obedience is necessary. Sixth, whether it is necessary that these should be the matter of a vow. Seventh, of the sufficiency of these vows. Eighth, of their comparison with one another. Ninth, whether a religious sins mortally whenever he transgresses a statute of his rule. Tenth, whether, other things being equal, a religious sins more grievously by the same kind of sin than a secular person. First article, whether religion implies a state of perfection. Objection 1. It would seem that religion does not imply a state of perfection. For that which is necessary for salvation does not seemingly pertain to perfection. But religion is necessary for salvation, whether because thereby we are bound religamur, to the one almighty God, as Augustine says in On the True Religion 55, or because it takes its name from a returning, religimus, to God, whom we had lost by neglecting him, according to Augustine in On the City of God 10.3, confer question 81, article 1. Therefore, it would seem that religion does not denote the state of perfection. Objection to. Further, religion, according to Tully in the Art of Rhetoric 253, is that which offers worship and ceremony to the divine nature. Now the offering of worship and ceremony to God would seem to pertain to the ministry of holy orders, rather than to the diversity of states, as stated above, in question 40, article 2, and in question 183, article 3. 
Therefore, it would seem that religion does not denote the state of perfection. Objection 3. Further, the state of perfection is distinct from the state of beginners and that of the proficient. But in religion, also, some are beginners and some are proficient. Therefore, religion does not denote the state of perfection. Objection 4. Further, religion would seem a place of repentance, for it is said in the decrees, in the canon oc nequaquam, the holy synod orders that any man who has been degraded from the episcopal dignity to the monastic life and a place of repentance should by no means rise again to the episcopate. Now a place of repentance is opposed to the state of perfection. Hence Dionysius, in On the Ecclesiastical Hierarchy 6, places penitence in the lowest place, namely among those who are to be cleansed. Therefore, it would seem that religion is not the state of perfection. On the contrary, in the Conferences of the Fathers, Collection 1-7, Abbot Moses, speaking of religious, says, We must recognize that we have to undertake the hunger of fasting, watchings, bodily toil, privation, reading, and other acts of virtue in order by these degrees to mount to the perfection of charity. Now things pertaining to human acts are specified and denominated from the intention of the end. Therefore, religious belong to the state of perfection. Moreover, Dionysius says, in On the Ecclesiastical Hierarchy 6, that those who are called servants of God, by reason of their rendering pure service and subjection to God, are united to the perfection beloved of him. I answer that, as stated above in question 141, article 2, that which is applicable to many things in common is ascribed antonomastically to that which is applicable by way of excellence. Thus the name of fortitude is claimed by the virtue which preserves the firmness of the mind in regard to most difficult things, and the name of temperance by that virtue which tempers the greatest pleasures. Now religion, as stated above in question 81, article 2, as well as article 3, second reply, is a virtue whereby a man offers something to the service and worship of God. Wherefore, those are called religious antonomastically who give themselves up entirely to the divine service as offering a holocaust to God. Hence Gregory says in his homily 20 on Ezekiel, Some there are who keep nothing for themselves, but sacrifice to Almighty God their tongue, their senses, their life, and the property they possess. Now the perfection of man consists in adhering wholly to God, as stated above, in question 184, article 2. And in this sense, religion denotes the state of perfection. Reply to Objection 1. To offer something to the worship of God 
is necessary for salvation, but to offer oneself wholly and one's possessions to the worship of God belongs to perfection. Reply to Objection 2. As stated above in Question 81, Article 1, First Reply, and Article 4, First and Second Replies, as well as in Question 85, Article 3, when we were treating of the virtue of religion, religion has reference not only to the offering of sacrifices and other like things that are proper to religion, but also to the acts of all the virtues which insofar as these are referred to God's service and honor become acts of religion. Accordingly, if a man devotes his whole life to the divine service, his whole life belongs to religion, and thus by reason of the religious life that they lead, those who are in the state of perfection are called religious. Reply to Objection 3 As stated above in Question 184, Articles 4 and 6, Religion denotes the state of perfection by reason of the end intended. Hence, it does not follow that whoever is in the state of perfection is already perfect, but that he tends to perfection. Hence, Origen, commenting on Matthew 19.21, If thou wilt be perfect, etc., says that He who has exchanged riches for poverty in order to become perfect does not become perfect at the very moment of giving his goods to the poor. But from that day the contemplation of God will begin to lead him to all the virtues. Thus all are not perfect in religion, but some are beginners, some proficient. Reply to Objection 4 The religious state was instituted chiefly that we might obtain perfection by means of certain exercises, whereby the obstacles to perfect charity are removed. By the removal of the obstacles of perfect charity, much more are the occasions of sin cut off, for sin destroys charity altogether. Wherefore, since it belongs to penance to cut out the causes of sin, it follows that the religious state is a most fitting place for penance. Hence a man who had killed his wife is counseled to enter a monastery, which is described as better and lighter, rather than to do public penance while remaining in the world, as cited by the canon Admonere. Second article. Whether every religious is bound to keep all the counsels. Objection 1. It would seem that every religious is bound to keep all the counsels. For whoever professes a certain state of life is bound to observe whatever belongs to that state. Now each religious professes the state of perfection. Therefore, every religious is bound to keep all the counsels that pertain to the state of perfection. Objection 2. Further, Gregory says in his homily 20 on Ezekiel that he who renounces this world and does all the good he can is like one who has gone out of Egypt and offers sacrifice in the wilderness. Now it belongs specially to religious to renounce the world. Therefore, 
it belongs to them also to do all the good they can, and so it would seem that each of them is bound to fulfill all the counsels. Objection 3. Further, if it is not requisite for the state of perfection to fulfill all the counsels, it would seem enough to fulfill some of them. But this is false, since some who lead a secular life fill some of the counsels, for instance, those who observe continence. Therefore, it would seem that every religious who is in the state of perfection is bound to fulfill whatever pertains to perfection, and such are the counsels. On the contrary, one is not bound, unless one bind oneself, to do works of supererogation. But every religious does not bind himself to keep all the counsels, but to certain definite ones, some to some, others to others. Therefore, all are not bound to keep all of them. I answer that, a thing pertains to perfection in three ways. First, essentially, and thus as stated above in question 184, article 3, the perfect observance of the precepts of charity belongs to perfection. Secondly, a thing belongs to perfection consequently. Such are those things that result from the perfection of charity, for instance, to bless them that curse you, according to Luke 6.27, and to keep counsels of a like kind, which though they be binding as regard the preparedness of the mind, so that one has to fulfill them when necessity requires, yet are sometimes fulfilled without there being any necessity, through superabundance of charity. Thirdly, a thing belongs to perfection instrumentally and dispositively, as poverty, continence, abstinence, and the like. Now it has been stated in Article 1 that the perfection of charity is the end of the religious state, and the religious state is a school or exercise for the attainment of perfection, which men strive to reach by various practices, such as a physician may use various remedies in order to heal. But it is evident that for him who works for an end, it is not necessary that he should already have attained the end, but it is requisite that he should by some means tend thereto. Hence he who enters the religious state is not bound to have perfect charity, but he is bound to tend to this, and use his endeavors to have perfect charity. For the same reason, he is not bound to fulfill those things that result from the perfection of charity, although he is bound to intend to fulfill them against which intention he acts if he contemns them, wherefore he sins not by omitting them, but by contempt of them. In like manner, he is not bound to observe all the practices whereby perfection may be attained, but only those which are definitely prescribed to him by the rule which he has professed. Reply to Objection 1. He who enters religion does not make profession to be perfect, but he professes to endeavor to attain perfection. 
even as he who enters the schools does not profess to have knowledge, but to study in order to acquire knowledge. Wherefore, as Augustine says in On the City of God, 8.2, Pythagoras was unwilling to profess to be a wise man, but acknowledged himself a lover of wisdom. Hence, a religious does not violate his profession if he not be perfect, but only if he despises to tend to perfection. Reply to Objection 2. Just as, though all are bound to love God with their whole heart, yet there is a certain wholeness of perfection which cannot be omitted without sin, and another wholeness which can be omitted without sin. Confer question 184, article 2, third reply. Provided there be no contempt, as stated above in the first reply. So too, all, both religious and seculars, are bound, in a certain measure, to do whatever good they can, for to all, without exception, it is said, in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever thy hand is able to do, do it earnestly. Yet there is a way of fulfilling this precept so as to avoid sin, namely, if one do what one can, as required by the conditions of one's state of life, provided there be no contempt of doing better things, which contempt sets the mind against spiritual progress. Reply to Objection 3. There are some counsels such that, if they be omitted, man's whole life would be taken up with secular business, for instance, if he have a property of his own, or enter the married state, or do something of the kind that regards the essential vows of religion themselves. Wherefore, religious are bound to keep all such like counsels. Other counsels there are, however, about certain particular better actions, which can be omitted without one's life being taken up with secular actions. Wherefore, there is no need for religious to be bound to fulfill all of them. Third article, whether poverty is required for religious perfection. Objection 1. It would seem that poverty is not required for religious perfection. For that which it is unlawful to do does not apparently belong to the state of perfection. But it would seem unlawful for a man to give up all he possesses, since the Apostle, in Second Corinthians 8.12, lays down the way in which the faithful are to give alms, saying, If the will be forward, it is accepted according to that which a man hath. That is, you should keep back what you need. And afterwards he adds, in Second Corinthians 8.13, For I mean not that others should be eased, and you burthened. That is, with poverty according to a gloss. Moreover, a gloss on 1 Timothy 6.8, having food and wherewith to be covered, says, Though we brought nothing, and will carry nothing away, we must not give up these temporal things altogether. Therefore, it seems that voluntary poverty is not requisite for religious perfection. Objection 2. Further, 
whosoever exposes himself to danger sins but he who renounces all he has and embraces voluntary poverty exposes himself to danger not only spiritual according to proverbs thirty nine lest perhaps being compelled by poverty i should steal and forswear the name of my god and ecclesiasticus twenty seven one through poverty many have sinned but also corporal for it is written in ecclesiastes seven thirteen as wisdom is a defense so money is a defense and the philosopher says in ethics four one that the waste of property appears to be a sort of ruining of oneself since thereby man lives therefore it would seem that voluntary poverty is not requisite for the perfection of religious life objection three further virtue observes the mean as stated in ethics two six but he who renounces all by voluntary poverty seems to go to the extreme rather than to observe the mean therefore he does not act virtuously and so this does not pertain to the perfection of life objection four further the ultimate perfection of man consists in happiness now riches conduce to happiness for it is written in ecclesiasticus thirty one eight blessed is the rich man that is found without blemish and the philosopher says in ethics one eight that riches contribute instrumentally to happiness therefore voluntary poverty is not requisite for religious perfection objection five further the episcopal state is more perfect than the religious state but bishops may have property as stated above in question one hundred and eighty five article six therefore religious may also objection six further almsgiving is a work most acceptable to god and as chrysostom says in his homily nine on the letter to the hebrews is a most effective remedy in repentance now poverty excludes almsgiving therefore it would seem that poverty does not pertain to religious perfection on the contrary gregory says in his commentary on job eight twenty six there are some of the righteous who bracing themselves up to lay hold of the very height of perfection while they aim at higher objects within abandon all things without now as stated above in articles one and two it belongs properly to religious to brace themselves up in order to lay hold of the very height of perfection therefore it belongs to them to abandon all outward things by voluntary poverty i answer that as stated above in article two the religious state is an exercise and a school for attaining to the perfection of charity for this it is necessary that a man wholly draw his affections from worldly things since augustine says in confessions ten twenty nine speaking to god 
too little doth he love thee who loves anything with thee which he loveth not for thee wherefore he says in his eighty-three questions question thirty-six that greater charity means less cupidity perfect charity means no cupidity now the possession of worldly things draws a man's mind to the love of them hence augustine says in his letter thirty-one that we are more firmly attached to earthly things when we have them than when we desire them since why did that young man go away sad save because he had great wealth for it is one thing not to wish to lay hold of what one has not and another to renounce what one already has the former are rejected as foreign to us the latter are cut off as a limb and chrysostom says in his homily sixty three on the gospel of matthew that the possession of wealth kindles a greater flame and the desire for it becomes stronger hence it is that in the attainment of the perfection of charity the first foundation is voluntary poverty whereby a man lives without property of his own according to the saying of our lord in matthew nineteen twenty one if thou wilt be perfect go sell all thou hast and give to the poor and come follow me reply to objection one as the gloss adds when the apostle said this namely not that you should be burthened that is with poverty he did not mean that it were better not to give but he feared for the weak whom he admonished so to give as not to suffer privation hence in like manner the other gloss means not that it is unlawful to renounce all one's temporal goods but that this is not required of necessity wherefore ambrose says in on the duties of the clergy one thirty our lord does not wish namely does not command us to pour out our wealth all at once but to dispense it or perhaps to do as did Eliseus, who slew his oxen and fed the poor with that which was his own so that no household care might hold him back reply to objection to he who renounces all his possessions for christ's sake exposes himself to no danger neither spiritual nor corporal for spiritual danger ensues from poverty when the latter is not voluntary because those who are unwillingly poor through the desire of money-getting fall into many sins according to first timothy six nine they that will become rich fall into temptation and into the snare of the devil this attachment is put away by those who embrace voluntary poverty but it gathers strength in those who have wealth as stated above again bodily danger does not threaten those who intent on following christ renounce all their possessions and entrust themselves to divine providence hence augustine says on his commentary on the lord's sermon on the mount two seventeen those who seek first the kingdom of god and his justice are not weighed down by anxiety lest they lack what is necessary
Reply to Objection 3. According to the philosopher in Ethics 2.6, the mean of virtue is taken according to right reason, not according to the quantity of a thing. Consequently, whatever may be done in accordance with right reason is not rendered sinful by the greatness of the quantity, but all the more virtuous. It would, however, be against right reason to throw away all one's possessions through intemperance or without any useful purpose, whereas it is in accordance with right reason to renounce wealth in order to devote oneself to the contemplation of wisdom. Even certain philosophers are said to have done this. For Jerome says in his letter 48 to Paulina, The famous Theban, Crates, once a very wealthy man, when he was going to Athens to study philosophy, cast away a large amount of gold, for he considered that he could not possess both gold and virtue at the same time. Much more, therefore, is it according to right reason for a man to renounce all he has in order perfectly to follow Christ. Wherefore Jerome says in his letter 125 to Rusticus the monk, Poor thyself, follow Christ poor. Reply to Objection 4. Happiness or felicity is twofold. One is perfect, to which we look forward in the life to come. The other is imperfect, in respect of which some are said to be happy in this life. The happiness of this life is twofold. One is according to the active life, the other according to the contemplative life, as the philosopher asserts in Ethics 10, 7, and 8. Now wealth conduces instrumentally to the happiness of the active life, which consists in external actions, because, as the philosopher says in Ethics 1, 8, we do many things by friends, by riches, by political influence, as it were, by instruments. On the other hand, it does not conduce to the happiness of the contemplative life, Rather, it is an obstacle thereto, inasmuch as the anxiety it involves disturbs the quiet of the soul, which is most necessary to one who contemplates. Hence it is that the philosopher asserts in Ethics 10.8 that, For actions many things are needed, but the contemplative man needs no such things, namely external goods. For his operation in fact, they are obstacles to his contemplation. Man is directed to future happiness by charity, and since voluntary poverty is an efficient exercise for the attaining of perfect charity, it follows that it is of great avail in acquiring the happiness of heaven. Wherefore our Lord said in Matthew 19.21, Go, sell all thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Now riches, once they are possessed, are in themselves of a nature to hinder the perfection of charity, especially by enticing and distracting the mind. Hence it is written in Matthew 13.22 that the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choketh up the word of God. For as Gregory says in his homily 15 on the Gospel by 
preventing the good desire from entering into the heart, they destroy life at its very outset. Consequently, it is difficult to safeguard charity amidst riches. Wherefore our Lord said in Matthew 19.23 that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven, which we must understand as referring to one who actually has wealth, since he says that this is impossible for him who places his affection in riches, according to the explanation of Chrysostom in homily 15 on the Gospel of Matthew. For he adds in Matthew 19.24, It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Hence, it is not said simply that the rich man is blessed, but the rich man that is found without blemish and that hath not gone after gold. And this because he has done a difficult thing, wherefore the text continues on Matthew 19.9. Who is he? And we will praise him, for he hath done wonderful things in his life, namely, by not loving riches though placed in the midst of them. Reply to Objection 5. The episcopal state is not directed to the attainment of perfection, but rather to the effect that, in virtue of the perfection which he already has, a man may govern others by administering not only spiritual but also temporal things. This belongs to the active life, wherein many things occur that may be done by means of wealth as an instrument, as stated above in the fourth reply. Wherefore, it is not required of bishops who make profession of governing Christ's flock that they have nothing of their own, whereas it is required of religious who make profession of learning to obtain perfection. Reply to Objection 6. The renouncement of one's own wealth is compared to almsgiving as the universal to the particular and as the holocaust to the sacrifice. Hence Gregory says in his homily 20 on Ezekiel that those who assist the needy with the things they possess by their good deeds offer sacrifice since they offer up something to God and keep back something for themselves whereas those who keep nothing for themselves offer a holocaust which is greater than a sacrifice. Wherefore Jerome also says, When you declare that those do better who retain the use of their possessions, and dole out the fruits of their possessions to the poor, it is not I but the Lord who answers you, if thou wilt be perfect, etc. And afterwards he goes on to say, this man whom you praise belongs to the second and third degree, and we too commend him, provided we acknowledge the first as to be preferred to the second and third. For this reason, in order to exclude the error of Vigilantius in the aforementioned letter, it is said, It is a good thing to give away one's goods by dispensing them to the poor. It is better to give them away once for all with the intention of following the Lord, and free of solicitude to be poor with Christ. Fourth Article Whether Perpetual Continence is Required for Religious Perfection Objection 1. 
it would seem that perpetual continence is not required for religious perfection. For all perfection of the Christian life began with Christ's apostles. Now the apostles do not appear to have observed continence, as evidenced by Peter, of whose mother-in-law we read in Matthew 8.14. Therefore, it would seem that perpetual continence is not requisite for religious perfection. Objection 2. Further, the first example of perfection is shown to us in the person of Abraham, to whom the Lord said, in Genesis 17.1, Walk before me, and be perfect. Now, the copy should not surpass the example. Therefore, perpetual continence is not requisite for religious perfection. Objection 3. Further, that which is required for religious perfection is to be found in every religious order. Now there are some religious who lead a married life. Therefore, religious perfection does not require perpetual continence. On the contrary, the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting sanctification in the fear of God. Now cleanness of flesh and spirit is safeguarded by continence, for it is said in 1 Corinthians 7.34, The unmarried woman and the virgin thinketh on the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in spirit and in body. Therefore, religious perfection requires continence. I answer that, the religious state requires the removal of whatever hinders man from devoting himself entirely to God's service. Now the use of sexual union hinders the mind from giving itself wholly to the service of God, and this for two reasons. First, on account of its vehement delectation, which by frequent repetition increases concupiscence, as also the philosopher observes in Ethics 3.12. And hence it is that the use of venery withdraws the mind from that perfect intentness on tending to God. Augustine expresses this when he says in Soliloquy 1.10, I consider that nothing so casts down the manly mind from its height as the fondling of women, and those bodily contacts which belong to the married state. Secondly, because it involves man in solicitude for the control of his wife, his children, and his temporalities, which serve for their upkeep. Hence the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 7.32-33, He that is without a wife is solicitous for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please God. But he that is with a wife is solicitous for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Therefore, perpetual continence, as well as voluntary poverty, is requisite for religious perfection. Wherefore, just as Vigilantius was condemned for equaling riches to poverty, so was Jovinian condemned for equaling marriage to virginity. Reply to Objection 1. The perfection not only of poverty, but also of continence, was introduced by Christ who said, in Matthew 19.12, There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs 
for the kingdom of heaven, and then added, He that can take, let him take it. And lest anyone should be deprived of the hope of attaining perfection, he admitted to the state of perfection even those who were married. Now the husbands could not without committing an injustice forsake their wives, whereas men could without injustice renounce riches. Wherefore Peter, whom he found married, he severed not from his wife, while he withheld from marriage John who wished to marry, confer the prologue to the commentary on the Gospel of John among the suppositious works of St. Jerome. Reply to Objection 2 As Augustine says in On the Good of Marriage, 22, The chastity of celibacy is better than the chastity of marriage, one of which Abraham had in use, both of them in habit. For he lived chastely, and he might have been chaste without marrying, but it was not requisite then. Nevertheless, if the patriarchs of old had perfection of mind together with wealth and marriage, which is a mark of the greatness of their virtue, this is no reason why any weaker person should presume to have such great virtue that he can attain to perfection though rich and married, as neither does a man unarmed presume to attack his enemy, because Samson slew many foes with the jawbone of an ass. For those fathers, had it been seasonable to observe continence and poverty, would have been most careful to observe them. Reply to Objection 3 Such ways of living as admit of the use of marriage are not the religious life simply and absolutely speaking, but in a restricted sense, insofar as they have a certain share in those things that belong to the religious state. Fifth Article Whether Obedience Belongs to Religious Perfection Objection 1 it would seem that obedience does not belong to religious perfection. For those things seemingly belong to religious perfection, which are works of supererogation and are not binding upon all. But all are bound to obey their superiors, according to the saying of the Apostle in Hebrews 13.17, Obey your prelates and be subject to them. Therefore, it would seem that obedience does not belong to religious perfection. Objection to. Further, obedience would seem to belong properly to those who have to be guided by the sense of others, and such persons are lacking in discernment. Now the Apostle says in Hebrews 5.14 that strong meat is for the perfect, for them who by custom have their senses exercised to the discerning of good and evil. Therefore, it would seem that obedience does not belong to the state of the perfect. Objection 3. Further, if obedience were requisite for religious perfection, it would follow that it is befitting to all religious. But it is not becoming to all, since some religious lead a solitary life and have no superior whom they obey. Again, religious superiors apparently are not bound to obedience. Therefore, obedience would seem not to pertain to religious perfection. Objection 4. Further, if the vow of obedience were requisite for religion, 
it would follow that religious are bound to obey their superiors in all things just as they are bound to abstain from all venery by vow of continence but they are not bound to obey them in all things as stated above in question 104 article 5 when we were treating of the virtue of obedience therefore the vow of obedience is not requisite for religion objection five further those services are most acceptable to god which are done freely and not of necessity according to second corinthians nine seven not with sadness or of necessity now that which is done out of obedience is done of necessity of precept therefore those good works are more deserving of praise which are done of one's own accord therefore the vow of obedience is unbecoming to religion whereby men seek to attain to that which is better on the contrary religious perfection consists chiefly in the imitation of christ according to matthew nineteen twenty one if thou wilt be perfect go sell all thou hast and give to the poor and follow me now in christ obedience is commended above all according to philippians two eight he became obedient unto death therefore seemingly obedience belongs to religious perfection i answer that as stated above in articles two and three the religious state is a school and exercise for tending to perfection now those who are being instructed or exercised in order to attain a certain end must needs follow the direction of someone under whose control they are instructed or exercised so as to attain that end as disciples under a master hence religious need to be placed under the instruction and command of someone as regards things pertaining to the religious life wherefore it is said in the canon oc nequaquam the monastic life denotes subjection and discipleship now one man is subjected to another's command and instruction by obedience and consequently obedience is requisite for religious perfection reply to objection one to obey one's superiors in matters that are essential to virtue is not a work of supererogation but is common to all whereas to obey in matters pertaining to the practice of perfection belongs properly to religious this latter obedience is compared to the former as the universal to the particular for those who live in the world keep something for themselves and offer something to god and in the latter respect they are under obedience to their superiors whereas those who live in religion give themselves wholly and their possessions to god as stated above in articles one and three hence their obedience is universal reply to objection two as the philosopher says in ethics two one and two by performing actions we contract certain habits and when we have acquired the habit we are best able to perform the actions accordingly those who have not attained to perfection acquire perfection by obeying while those who have already acquired perfection are most ready to obey not as though they need to be directed to the acquisition of perfection 
but as maintaining themselves by this means in that which belongs to perfection. Reply to Objection 3. The subjection of religious is chiefly in reference to bishops, who are compared to them as prefectors to perfected, as Dionysius states in On the Ecclesiastical Hierarchy 6, where he also says that the monastic order is subjected to the perfecting of virtues of the bishops, and is taught by their godlike enlightenment. Hence neither hermits nor religious superiors are exempt from obedience to bishops, and if they be wholly or partly exempt from obedience to the bishop of the diocese, they are nevertheless bound to obey the sovereign pontiff, not only in matters affecting all in common, but also in those which pertain specially to religious discipline. Reply to Objection 4. The vow of obedience taken by religious extends to the disposition of a man's whole life, and in this way it has a certain universality, although it does not extend to all individual acts. For some of these do not belong to religion, through not being of those things that concern the love of God and of our neighbor, such as rubbing one's beard, lifting a stick from the ground, and so forth which do not come under a vow nor under obedience, and some are contrary to religion. Nor is there any comparison with continence whereby acts are excluded which are altogether contrary to religion. Reply to Objection 5. The necessity of coercion makes an act involuntary and consequently deprives it of the character of praise or merit whereas the necessity which is consequent upon obedience is a necessity not of coercion, but of a free will, inasmuch as a man is willing to obey, although perhaps he would not be willing to do the thing commanded considered in itself. Wherefore, since by the vow of obedience a man lays himself under the necessity of doing for God's sake certain things that are not pleasing in themselves, for this very reason that which he does is the more acceptable to God, though it be of less account, because man can give nothing greater to God than by subjecting his will to another man's for God's sake. Hence, in the conferences of the fathers, it is stated that the Serabete are the worst class of monks, because through providing for their own needs without being subject to superiors, they are free to do as they will and yet day and night they are more busily occupied in work than those who live in monasteries. End of question 186, part 1 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.